Welcome to the I Will Teach You a Language podcast, weekly doses of language learning tips and motivation to help you become fluent in any language. With me, Ollie Richards. Hello. Good morning and welcome back to the I Will Teach You a Language podcast. Thank you very much for joining me today. We've got a very special episode today. If you are a language learner, if you learn languages, maybe you teach languages, or if you're just generally interested in language and culture, then you're in the right place. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you ideas, thoughts, tips, interviews, things like that, all in the arena of languages. And what we're trying to do here is all of us together are, are trying to become better, more aware, more effective language learners, so that we can create the kind of life that we want which is a life enriched by languages and the people that we meet through the study of languages. I, uh, I recommend you subscribe to the podcast because that way you get new episodes delivered to you automatically every week. They usually come out twice a week when I'm on form. And uh, do we have a great episode for you today? It's been a while since I felt so excited at the prospect of speaking to one particular person. Uh, but this is somebody who I have studied and read throughout my own education as a teacher, right from my initial teacher training through to various kinds of professional development and then through to my master's uh, in, in linguistics. And it is somebody who, you know, whatever side of the fence you come down on, if you have looked, if you've studied the, um, second language acquisition in particular, what's undeniable is that Dr. Stephen Gresham, who I'm speaking with today, is one of the people who has most put forward ideas and theories about the way languages are learned that have not only been most easy to understand, but have also influenced entire generations of, of, of language teachers, of researchers. And this is, you know, for someone who has studied as a teacher, this is the impact that, that, that Krashen has. You will not find somebody who studied language teaching who is not familiar with Krashen's theories of learning. I'm not going to get into them here because I think the interview is far more interesting than me listing off a series of, of credentials, but suffice it to say that the list is extensive. If you're not familiar with Stephen Krashen, I suggest you take a moment to read his Wikipedia page where you will uh, you'll get an idea of the, the breadth of his work. Now, the, the conversation that you're going to hear is really an opportunity for me to be very self-indulgent. I ask him a lot of the things that I've wanted to ask him for a very, very long time. The conversation, though, centers around Gresham's observation uh, about polyglots and how polyglots learn languages. And this is really special because generally these different fields do not mix. The scientific um, research that is done into second language acquisition usually gives no quarter to people who independently learn languages. People studying this stuff do not look at people like you or I or others in the polyglot community, people who independently learn languages for fun and who are quite good at it. And this is, this is, uh, this is strange. Krashen says himself that he has only recently, uh, come across the so-called polyglot community. And so I really felt that this conversation came along at a very good time, and uh, I feel that I got Krashen at his best, which is a, a privilege. Before we get into the conversation, I would like to thank the sponsors of the show, who, are, of course, are the wonderful italki. And with italki, what you can do is find teachers online. Whatever language you're learning, whatever level you are, whatever dialect of that language, you can find a teacher online and take lessons usually over Skype, at a time and place that's convenient for you. If you'd like to get a free lesson, you can go to IWillTeachYourLanguage.com forward slash free lesson. And now, I give you Dr. Stephen Gresham. 
I'm here with Dr. Stephen Krashen. Stephen, thank you for uh, taking the time. Thank you. I mean, first of all, I'd just like to say that as a, I'm a, I, I trained as a teacher, um, went on to do my, my master's in linguistics. I spent a lot of time uh, reading your work. I'm sorry. I made you suffer. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. More to come, though. I'm sorry. It just keeps doing. It just keeps coming. But it was highly influential on me and on many other people that I uh, have, have worked with. So on behalf of... Uh, Everybody that I've worked with, I'd like to thank you for your, for your well, contribution. That's, that's a refreshing reaction. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, we are, for a bit of context for those of you watching, we are here in a, in a, in a gathering in Montreal, of all places, and um, we are at a, how would you describe this? It's a, a, a polyglot gathering, which sounds rather, rather intimidating, but it's just a gathering of people that like languages, and many of them are very good at it as well. And uh, we've spent a little bit of time this weekend discussing the implications of the so-called polyglot movement and people who, uh, who, who learn lots of languages and what that means for people like yourself who spent a long time researching uh, second language acquisition. So I'd like to discuss a few of those um, ideas today. But the, one of the things that struck me when I was listening to your talk the other day was that you have a background in music. Mm -hmm. And um, as do I. I. I studied at the Guildhall School of Music in... Uh, in London, wow! A degree in uh, in piano, really? And, uh, yeah. To play lots of Brahms. Well, it was mostly jazz that I did. So my my, oh. my thing was jazz. So I did do classical music as a as a kid, but I no, I was um I was playing jazz most of the time. You know, there's a piano outside. There's pianos all over the place on the street here. Yeah, the yeah. I played yesterday. Yeah. It was great fun. We'll yeah. have to find have to find it later. And no one paid any attention, which is wonderful. Right. They just walked by. It's great. Yeah. What's your musical background? My musical background is like everyone else, a uh, middle-class Jewish kid in uh, the United States. I grew up, they gave me piano lessons when I was a little boy, and they didn't take at all. Then in college, I got interested, and I couldn't play anything outside of C major, you know, with tiny little tunes. And I started all over again, got excited when I heard other people playing the piano. So just like language in acquisition, college. in college, mm -hmm. just like a language acquisition, I'm a late beginner. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful. I changed my major to musicology, music history, and I decided I wanted to kind of catch up with piano. And I took a year off and went to Vienna and studied with my teacher's teacher. My teacher then was Malcolm Bilson, who became a very famous, wonderful concert pianist and all that. So uh, I went off with his teacher, Frau Hinterhofer, and uh, it didn't work. She was not impressed with anything I did. It was constant uh, discouragement, uh, etc. So I gave up after about five months. So I kept practicing. I spent the rest of the year there, and you know, worked up the pathetic sonata, which you have to do, and all that. Played it for my friends, but I had a great circle of friends, and my German improved enormously. And that changed everything. I still play the piano. I played yesterday on the street, mm -hmm. okay? And I love it. I just don't practice anymore. Which is it's, a, it's, it's a time commitment, isn't it, music? Yeah. yeah. Arthur Rubinstein said that he played the piano eight hours a day, but only one hour was practice. That's very inspiring. Right. Anyway, uh, so it's been, since then, it's been languages. And a trip to Europe a couple of years later, listening to all the languages around me, I got very excited about it. And... Uh, eventually changed my whole career. Uh, two years in the Peace Corps, Ethiopia, and that was Amharic. 
after that, six months in Israel with my wife, kibbutz, Hebrew. So I started to build myself up to a junior polyglot. Not like you people, but enough to appreciate what you're doing and how exciting it all is. I'd like to pick up on the music point, but just to finish off the, the chronology of your languages, what other languages have you studied? Well, German is my best second language because of Vienna. Uh, after that, French here and there. Uh, of course, Spanish living in Southern California and the amazing friendliness of Spanish speakers in California. They're wonderful. They don't correct you. They're just happy to have a nice conversation. Yeah. It's great. Uh, Hebrew from the kibbutz. Uh, and Amharic from uh, Israel, from uh, Ethiopia, and now it's uh, Mandarin. A couple of years of Mandarin class. Uh, <clears throat> my Mandarin teacher, Heiyun Lu, she's wonderful. My first Mandarin teacher was Linda Lee, a world-renowned Mandarin teacher, and that was just the best introduction to TPRS and Mandarin that I could have had. And you define TPRS for TPRS is teaching proficiency through reading and storytelling. It's a storytelling method. The Good methods now are based on interesting stories where you fall in love with the story. You get so interested in the story that you forget it's in another language. Two methods do it. TPRS invented by Blaine Ray, where the teachers and the students create the story together. There's a lot of back and forth, but students don't have to say very much. Okay, It's question and answer building the story. Uh, another one which I'm also very enthusiastic about is my colleague Benico Mason, Benico-Mason.net. For Blaine stuff, just Google TPR, TPRS. And it's telling stories and making them comprehensible with explanation, occasional translation, and drawings. And she relies a great deal on Grimm's fairy tales and makes them just fascinating and interesting. Right. And that's very good. It's wonderful. One of the things that we've, we found out that we have in common is that we've both, both produced books of short stories. Yep. Yourself in Mandarin, myself in a, in, a, in a number of languages. It's this, the, the, the idea of story is something that I find myself coming back to over and over again. And um, so it's, it's great to hear you mentioning that. It's also great to see that you've studied so many languages yourself, because I mean, certainly in the, in, the, in the language teaching profession, there, there is a tendency for teachers to be monolingual and not having gone through the experience of actually learning. It's worse than that. There's a tendency for some experts Right. to be monolingual. Yeah. And I am regularly accused of being monolingual. Uh -huh. They think I'm just like they are. Well, yeah. you heard it here first. Yeah. 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 I have a strong feeling that if you're a language teacher, you have to be a language learner. Always. I, I'm astonished the, the amount that, that, that people actually reject that. Oh my that, God. That, it's, that, you, you really, that's absolutely wonderful you said yeah. that. Not only that, it is extremely helpful for people like me, researchers, to be at different levels. Uh -huh. Like German and French are pretty comfortable. Spanish, I'm kind of, <clears throat> as we say in Mandarin, mama hu, I'm kind of in the middle. Uh, with Hebrew, not quite as good. With Mandarin, I'm struggling, which is great. Uh, you've got to be in the acquirer's mind all the time. So I regard my language experiences as part of the research. I've often felt, found myself wondering, and I don't know whether it's a fair assumption to make, but I've often found that a lot of the, the TEFL industry in particular goes in a certain direction, which is constrained by the fact that um, the teachers tend to be monolingual. And if that were not the case, there would be far more options open to uh, pedagogically to the teaching. Oh, yeah. I mean, is that... Uh, your you're, reaction absolutely, to that? you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. 
Uh, I can't blame a lot of the teachers. It's not easy if you're living, say, in an English-speaking country uh, to be to acquire another language. And even if you're abroad, uh, there's so much English around nearly everywhere, and there's a pressure on English peepers, uh, English people to speak English all the time. People yeah. want to speak English with you. So that's a barrier. But there are ways around it, and it's up to us to come up with good ways like easy classes, uh, a lot of the polyglots have programs, have uh, uh, internet uh, things, books, etc. So Online we're working courses. on it. Yeah, yeah. courses, etc. And, and just general discussion of approaches to, to learning, which is what we've been talking about here at this, uh, this weekend. Um, incidentally, one of the things that I find striking about my colleagues in, 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 these, in this field, when people talk about the methodologies they use to acquire multiple languages, Travel and learning the language in the country is actually something that people usually recommend against for various reasons that we that we could get into. But certainly in the early stages, you know, the the early, you know, the the acquisition of your the foundation of a language. I think most most experienced language learners accept that it's best done in. Um, and you, you you said it yourself, in an environment of comprehensible input, not immersion, because immersion can pile on all kinds of pressures socially, psychologically, linguistically, which Get in the way of. Uh, of I'm much way. better off in my Mandarin class and working alone than going to China right now. I'm not good enough. Uh-huh. Other languages, sure, I'm fine. Spanish, being in Mexico, South America, Spain, I get better because I'm already intermediate. Sure. Yeah, you can already you can already I, hold a conversation. I can understand. I can read things, etc. Yeah. Taking it back to the music, people often ask me what I think is the connection, if any, between music and language learning, and oh. I never know how to answer it. I have my standard answer, but I'd like to put, put it to you. Okay, I'll take a risk and see if we come to the same conclusion. Not much. Mm. Um, there are studies that relate music to literacy development. Uh, people who, if your kids take an instrument or they go to more concerts, they do better on reading tests. When you look at the research carefully, which I do all day long, it's minuscule. It's like 2% of reading a lot of books. I mean, that that's really what counts, doing lots and lots of reading, getting exposure. So the impact of music in the experimental research is very indirect. People say, let's include songs in classes. Okay, songs in classes are okay, but the actual words of the songs are no better than studying a poem. Now here you're talking about music as a pedagogical activity. Right. How about in cases like like art, like ours, when we have actually been through a period of musical training. Uh, to rephrase the question, is you okay? You have spent a lot of time studying music, therefore you are a better language learner. No, mm. no, no. I think no, in no, in no, no I don't see any direct connection. I know that as a group, I'm sure this, this polyglot organization is very interested in music. I know they're correlated. The interest is, but I don't know if it's causal. Sure. I really don't. I think the idea, let me go back to pedagogy for a moment. If you want to use music as a language teacher, yes, but discuss the song. Discuss what the words mean, the history, the gossip, that Gershwin and Ravel were buddies. They would hang out in Harlem together and all that, and do all that in in the language, and you get a lot of interest. Teach people to play a ukulele or you know a little keyboard and all that, and that's wonderful. It's often part of the problem, isn't it? You can have a discussion about language learning, Let's just let's let's assume let's make an assumption that there is a connection between uh, experience with music or proficiency in, in music and language learning. The difficulty is well, what do you do with that? Once you, if you if you grant that, 
what are, what are the implications for that? And it's it's very difficult to take that. And it's like it's like the argument of well, are you can you be too old to learn a language, or, or is there such thing as natural talent in language learning? Let's assume there is. Where does that? Then where does it get you? There's no change in the pedagogy. Yeah. There's no change just, in the just, language just acquisition device. It's comprehensible, but it's understanding messages that makes language acquisition work. Hmm. And music is not going to make any big difference to that. I don't think. I think anecdotally, and so much of this is anecdotal. One, of the, the two benefits that I often articulate for music are firstly uh, in the strength of my ear in terms of acquiring accents, mm-hmm. to the sense that I feel that my ear is very much tuned to sounds, um, perhaps more than people that haven't spent many years with music. The second thing is the the act of, especially with classical music, when you're rehearsing music, preparing for a recital, you, there is a certain discipline that you develop for uh, acquiring something new and rehearsing it until the point of, uh, of being able to yeah, use it. Yeah, personality characteristic, yes, because yeah. you're involved in it. Let me give you a crackpot theory of accent. Okay, I call this a conjecture. Conjecture is really a hypothesis, but one you think might not be true. So you can say, oh, it's just a conjecture. I got this from my son, mathematician. He says, just call it a conjecture. You'll be okay. I think the perfect accent is inside you. And that we acquire really good accents very quickly. After a couple hundred hours, we've got it. The perfect French accent is here. I've got it. I don't perform it because I feel silly. It's not me. Mm -hmm. Evidence, which is anecdotal, but I think pretty good. My accent in French is variable. It depends on how I feel. I remember once a while ago, I was in Paris, and I had a coffee with a local uh, expert in sociolinguistics and sociology of language. She spoke like 500 languages, but none of them was English. And we met at a coffee shop, and we had a nice discussion. My daughter, who at the time was going to a French school, was with me, she was a young girl at the time, and she would come over and listen and go, I, afterwards she said, Dad, you were really good. I've never heard you speak French so well. Well, there was nobody watching. We were deeply involved in the conversation. The other person thought I was very smart, mm. wasn't paying attention to my French, etc. Other times I'm told I speak French without a trace of a French accent. Uh, at the University of Ottawa in the 80s, I had a sabbatical, and I was working with our team on an article we were writing in French and we were in the room and I had the board and I was doing the discussion the door opened a stranger walked in I thought oh my gosh I'm probably making all these mistakes my French disintegrated on the spot it was completely unconscious I couldn't stop it I think that's what dictates accent Uh, we know that a little bit of alcohol your studies improves your accent temporarily. I might have experienced that last night. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I think there's this output filter, success phobia. What do you do about it? Nothing. Just relax and realize no accent teaching course has ever worked that I have seen. There's no evidence that it gives you a permanent acquisition of a better accent. Yeah, I mean, you just look at Henry Kissinger type figures. Uh, exactly. As the, as the, as the, now the let's evidence. look at look at Henry Kissinger and Arnold Schwarzenegger. They're both similar. If you listen to them carefully, first of all, they have acquired English completely. Yeah. Uh, uh, Arnold is very articulate. He's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. Kissinger, of course. Yeah. Um, and if you listen hard to their accent, 
you realize that when Arnold Schwarzenegger speaks, he's not using 100% the German sound system. He's acquired most of the English sound system, just not quite all of it. Our standards are ridiculously high. That's the problem. Yeah. I could go down this rabbit hole for, yeah, for a long time, but, I'm not, but I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going to. For, for the benefit of, of people watching who might not be so familiar with your work, could you give us a, 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 a brief summary of your thesis? Sure. We acquire language in one way. I told this to the guy who fixed my coffee machine in the room yesterday, so I'm ready to do this. Okay. okay. I said, yeah, that's great. So we acquire language in only one way, when we understand what people say and when we understand what we read. If you do that, all the grammar and vocabulary you're ready to acquire is there, and it's gradually, little by little, absorbed. The ability to speak is the result of listening, the result of reading. Study doesn't help you very much. Uh, memorizing vocabulary rule, vocabulary, studying grammar, getting your errors corrected, trying to talk, all those things are the result of language acquisition. So you want to get better at another language? Listen and read, listen and read, find things you're really interested in, where you're excited to know what's going to happen next, a good book, a good movie, an interesting friend, and be patient, it comes over time. We are born to acquire language, that's the way our brains are. Do, in your own language learning, how, how do you, to what extent do you walk the walk, so to speak, and how do you, um, what, what's the, the, what's the, implication of that in terms of how does it manifest itself in learning in my life yeah okay um i did a presentation on this in uh, with my colleague linda lee last year i guess you missed it in copenhagen anyway international schools conference uh it was called regression to skill building that even people like us forget the theory occasionally for the languages i'm already low intermediate in and higher i'm fine with the theory when i read in spanish when I read in French, when I read in German, I don't stop, I don't look up words, uh, I don't worry about grammar, etc. And even though I'm not in the country, I keep reading and I'm gradually getting better. It's very nice and comfortable and I find books that are so exciting, I forget they're in the other language, I just can't put down, I want to know what's going to happen next. Mm. When it comes to Mandarin, I sometimes forget. And I, I go to the old classic thing, I, I want to look up every word. Yeah. I want to make sure what I'm saying is absolutely correct. What is this grammar rule? How does it work? What is this tone number two or tone number three? The cure for this is compelling input. The cure are interesting stories and interesting conversations. Then all that fades away. So we've had so many years of grammar and formal study, it's sometimes hard to get over it. For people who are at a very beginner level, the obvious objection to this is, well, how can I begin to, to where can I get input that is comprehensible when I myself am at such a beginner stage? How do you address that? Find stories. Take a class where there are lots of stories. And if you need to repeat it, I did a full year of Mandarin with my teacher. Uh, she works in a, in a school in the Midwest and because it's a fairly wealthy private school, she can record all the lessons. Mm -hmm. And she sends me the recordings of okay. the classes. It's what, really what does the lesson look like? Oh, it's, it's TPRS. She tells a story, and the students help create the story, etc. And it's very personal, like the students' interests, hobbies, uh, etc. This basically revolves around a good story. 
Okay? Yeah. And the students are characters in the story. They all know I'm watching, so sometimes I'm a character in the story. It's nice. Uh, so find a class like that. Find a class where you can get involved. Either TPRS, just to Google it, or Benico Mason's method, story listening, which is beginning to spread, which is very good. Something where the teacher is saying things that are fascinating and interesting. Sure. And don't worry about repeating it. Oh, that was my point. After the first year, she said, I'm failing you. You're going to take it all over again, which she was right. My comprehension wasn't good enough. So I repeated it, and I go back over the things again. I become very patient with all this. So I imagine this, this was the genesis of your Mandarin short stories that you've... Uh, that was before created. with Linda Lee, my very first teacher. In 2007, I went to a conference in Colorado, and my colleague Karen Rowan had organized it, and she came to my dorm room every morning at... 7.30, and I'm a night person, with coffee. And she said, get out of bed. You're going to Linda's class. I said, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. I went to Linda's class. It was amazing. Mm. It was the story method. Sure. And she made it so exciting. I had been to Taiwan many times. I have friends there, and I acquired practically nothing because it was all incomprehensible. Her class, the first two minutes, I got more than I had three months back and forth to Taiwan. It was amazing. Classes are fabulous for beginners because you can get the input that you can't get from the outside world. Now with the internet, the polyglots, you and your friends are helping solve this by putting things online. This is what the computer is for. Yeah. It's not the fancy programs from the publishers. It's you guys who know what you're doing saying interesting things. That's what's going to help. Well, let, let's talk about this. I mean, we. So you've spent now two days surrounded by some extremely prolific language. Oh my goodness, yes. What, what are your headline thoughts at this stage? My headline thoughts, first of all, we are a very strange group. We being? Me and you and yeah. polyglots, and I'm a junior polyglot, so mm. I think we're, most people are like us. We're not, we are fascinated by language. Mm. Nevertheless, it is, I have learned an enormous amount. I have listened to the experts now for two days. They have confirmed for me that comprehensible input is the universal path. This is right. But they've added all these bits of advice and strategies and things that you guys do that I hadn't thought about. Uh, Steve Kaufman, who's a person that you and I both admire, has said things like, don't try to be perfect. The other person you're talking to doesn't care if you make grammatical mistakes. Try to communicate they're interested in what you're saying. Little things like this have been enormously helpful. Have patience. If their speech is not emerging, have faith in your brain. Go back to listening. Go back to reading. Uh, it's been extremely helpful. It's been confirming and expanding. I'm gradually building up in my notebook strategies that the polyglots use to get comprehensible input. Yeah. Which well, is very helpful. The good news is, is that it's all... <laughs> You've been following channels like mine for a while. We, this is we, we talk about this stuff day in day out. There's no shortage exactly. of this. Uh, there is for the world. You guys are telling a few hundred thousand people. I want everybody to know it. Yeah. Well, a few hundred thousand. I guess we've got to start somewhere, right? Yes, right. Um, I mean, the things that you've mentioned, both in terms of my earlier question about language acquisition and and what Steve has spoken about. There are a few linguistic points I'd like to highlight that you raise in your in your presentation and I imagine that was created 
before you came here this weekend. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it just really goes to reinforce what we're talking about. I mean, you've mentioned comprehensible input over immersion. You mentioned compelling input. And one of the things that, that language learners will, will say is that they, they go to the ends of the earth to find material to spend time with that they are that they find enjoyable. Yes. I mean, it's more, it's, it's almost, yes. they won't start doing anything yes. until they found that piece of material. Exactly. To just carry on through this list, you mentioned patience. And this is in, the, in I don't know if this, your talk will end up being on YouTube or not, but... Um, Fine with me if they do that. Yeah. Uh, patience, which I guess relates to the concept of time and the fact that time does so much of the work for you and that you can't force the process. Uh, you mentioned just now no forced production which is that we're not forcing you to speak through a behaviorist right, type approach. Right. Um, and to go a level deeper, we're talking about acquisition rather than a, an approach of skill building, yeah, deliberate skill building. learning. Yeah. And then finally is the idea of the question, do we have to know every word? Is it necessary to understand everything that's being said? And, and, and so this is the idea of gradual acquisition. And, you know, if, in, in terms of, reading the graded readers um, and I wrote a long introduction to my to my series in which my, my basic point was you don't have to understand every word you, there are going to be lots of words you don't understand you it's can tolerate fine. a little noise you, you, you need to develop a tolerance for ambiguity such mm-hmm. that you can because the, the only goal for me and I don't know why I'm telling you what I think Tell but me. the me, only please. goal in something like reading is to get to the end of the chapter that you're reading Find out who did it. Find out who did it. And then when you get to the end of the chapter, get to the end of the book. It's, it's the act of completing the material that you're consuming that is the bearer of the treasure and the gifts at the end of the And day. you'll see all those words again. Don't worry. They'll come back. <laughs> They'll come back. But, but, but moreover, it's the ability to, to handle ambiguity and unknown... A certain things. amount of tolerance of noise. Tolerance of vagueness. Not extreme. Well, I can handle some... Steve says he can he can handle twenty percent noise, which is a lot. Yeah, uh, I think we vary, but we all can handle some of it. Sure, I guess so. In terms of the the, the implication of this is that what it goes to show the importance of finding the right material, doesn't it? Because you need to have that everything the, the comprehensible input, but not that's everything. It's like what's the balance? Steve says twenty percent for him. For him, uh, for me, I I probably put it more like ten five ten percent. Yeah, me too. Comfortably. Yeah. Um, a lot of reading theory will say you should, you, know, you should be reading at 98% comprehension. Uh, yeah, the, the studies range from 90 to 98%, mm. 95%. Depends on the text, depends on you. A little sure. bit, of, it has to be that way. Because there's a lot of stuff that we hear that we're not going to acquire for another two years. Take, for example, English. Uh, certain grammatical items are there all the time, and they're very late acquired. Like the third person singular ending, he goes... That can take six months to a year for children, first yeah. language. Second language, sometimes it doesn't come, ever. Uh, some dialects don't have it. And a beginner is going to hear that all the time. You can ignore it. Yeah. Wait till its time has come. Well, especially when it's redundant. redundant Most of these things are redundant. Yeah. That's the point. Yes, thank yeah. you. Most of these things don't matter. All the endings in German, you'll get them. Well, and again, it only becomes an issue if you are being obliged to produce from the beginning based on some series and of... It has um, to be correct. And it has yes. to be correct. That's the problem. Most pedagogy is like taking the theory and turning it backwards. 
my friend Steve Sternfeld said, it's like people see the light and then blinded, turn the other way, go back to the old way. Anything surprised you this weekend? Actually, no. That's what surprised me. Okay. I am thrilled that there's so much agreement and that I'm learning so much. That's been amazing. Oh, I was expecting a scoop then. No surprise, really, really. Uh, I'm surprised I'm learning so much. Pleasant surprise. That's been good. This is a gold mine. In your work, what's something you've changed your mind about in the last... Uh... It's actually the other way around. The hypotheses I came up with were born around 1975-76. The basics have not changed. There has been development, for example, in, and that's amazing. The research continues to support acquisition learning, the limited role of grammar, uh, etc. The exciting developments over time, uh, the role of writing. We now think writing does not cause language acquisition, that's the result, but writing makes you smarter. Mm. When you write something down, you reread it, you revise it, you come up with better ideas. It's a method of organizing your thoughts. Absolutely, it's yeah. fabulous. The more people write, the smarter they get, the yeah. more they try to solve problems. So that's helped. The idea of, the, of affect, we said there was this filter, I still think there is, that if you're anxious, nervous, the input doesn't quite penetrate. Well, we expand that to say compelling input will lower this filter. The idea of compelling is new. The applications of the theory, it started with adult second language acquisition. Then, to my amazement, it worked for child second language every three, four years. Now I'm convinced it works for language acquisition in general. It laid the foundation for successful bilingual programs. And a couple of years ago, I started looking at research in animal language and wrote a paper on it, a couple of papers. And it fits fairly well. It's something that could guide the research. Only one person in the whole animal language literature is aware of these hypotheses. Irene Pepperberg, who worked with a parrot. Uh, and my goal is to make them aware of it so they can test what they're doing. A lot of it is very, very consistent. So it's been expanding. Scientists, if you ask them, what's the, if you could unlock one secret for the universe, what would it be? And the, and the answer is often, what's the nature of dark matter? What's your equivalent answer in the area of... There are two questions, and we have tentative answers to both. How do we acquire language? By understanding it. How do we get smart? By trying to solve problems. You don't get smart by study. Smart people never study. They try to solve problems. And like my favorite example is Linus Pauling, uh, who knew more about chemistry than anyone on the planet. Uh, had all was involved in most of the major discoveries. Uh, 60 years of trying to solve problems. He didn't get up in the morning and review the periodic table. So those are the two things. Geniuses are people who have found what they want to study. That's the other part. Find your path. We're all different. Um, Mark Twain said, the two most important days of your life, the day you're born, the day you discover why. The polyglots here have discovered why, what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Find your path, read a lot in it, read for pleasure, that helps you find your path, gives you knowledge, and then try to solve problems in it. And you get that's the key to getting very smart. Yeah. Those, to me, are the major things. Comprehensible input, problem solving, find your path. It is... Uh... You know, I've been to a number of these events. 
it still amazes me how visceral the energy in the air is. Oh, these are wonderful the, people. The passion, I know, the, I know. But in, to, to the extent that it relates to language learning, you can just, I mean, it's, you, you kind of casually said it, you know, find something you're passionate about. But that is what it, that's, that's the thing. I mean, let's not gloss over this. That, I mean, when, you're, when you develop that passion for a language, there should be nothing stopping you. Not finding good material can be a pain in the backside, but um, assuming you can find Well, look it. at it this way. People like the polyglots, people like you, have done all three of the things I've mentioned. You know how to acquire language and you're doing it and you love it. You're trying to solve problems. You're constantly working on the theory as I am. You're working on it from inside out. I'm from the outside looking in. So we're all doing, trying to solve the problem and we are following our paths, all three things. So of course we're happy and we're all getting smarter all the time. My final question for you is about the what we've seen here and then the, the um the, the polylog community, people that learn languages in a self-directed way. How, how does what people here do fit into the overall research? Um, not yet, not much. Um, how can it? I mean, what, what, well, how relevant, how I, useful can it be? The only thing that's, well, it's a test of the theory, of course. Uh, these are all case histories. And if there's a single polyglot who did not acquire language through comprehensible input, I'm in big trouble. The whole theory is in trouble. So this is a constant testing of the theory. It's as well a constant exercise in application, how to get comprehensible input. This should be hot stuff for the researchers. Mm. I did one article on Lomkato, a polyglot I met. I've included her a couple other places. But people like me need to be examining people like you, quoting you, thinking what you're doing, watching your things, and talking about it with other people, making it part of our writing. The uh, second language acquisition research community has done two things with polyglots. Mostly they don't know about it. They don't know you exist. Second, so you said yourself you weren't aware of the community. Until no, I wasn't reason. until Steve got me involved. So yeah. this is great. Um, second, when they do find out about you, this is what happened to me in Hungary. I mentioned that I've been hanging out with Lomkato, this great polyglot. I said, oh, she has a different brain. She's got a talent. She's talented. She's got a talent. Yeah. No. The hypothesis, and everybody here agrees with it, no. It's knowing how to do it and doing a lot of it, staying with it and loving it. Yeah. So anybody can do it. Yeah. And you find these polyglots who, who speak far more languages than I do, and you ask them how long it took them to learn Mandarin. The answer, well, you know. I'm still working on it, man. Yeah, it's been 10 years, and you know, my friend Vlad said, uh, who speaks phenomenal Chinese, said, you know, uh, like you said, last year at an event, um, you know, I've been learning Chinese for nine or ten years, and just last month I felt like I really got somewhere. You know? Gosh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that, that's the kind of stuff I need to quote. Patience, yeah. patience, it comes. But you don't have to be perfect. Ilom Kato said, language is one thing that knowing a little bit is good. If you only know a little bit of science, you can make some bad mistakes, as the President of the United States is showing us. But in language, anything you know is good. You can use any of it. I know your real goal in life, which is to get more Twitter followers than Justin Bieber. That's true. You, uh, yes. you confessed you. as much. So for people watching, how can they, uh, how can they find Twitter, you on Twitter and Twitter elsewhere? Twitter, S-Krashen, I have a website which has my articles, www sdcrashen.com D is my middle name David please feel free to download my books which my older books are on the 
website and lots of articles. Don't ask permission. It's all available for free. It's all free. Weddings, bar mitzvahs, you can give it to all your friends. If you're a teacher, you can give it to your students. It's fine. And I'm also on Facebook. So these are ways of getting work around. Wonderful. We'll link to all of these in the description of the video. Uh, if you, anyone listening to this on the podcast, uh, we'll put this in the show notes. I'll make sure to link to everything that uh, Dr. Krashen's mentioned today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Ali. Great pleasure. See you next time. All right. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephen Krashen just as much as I did. Here are a few things you can do right now if you'd like to continue the conversation or follow up on any of the topics that we, we spoke about in this in this interview. Uh, first of all, you can find a summary of everything we've spoken about, um, including bullet point lists of all the all the different topics and the things that were said. You can find that at IWillTeachYourLanguage.com forward slash Krashen. That's K-R-A-S-H-E-N. So if you'd like to see a summary or leave a comment, you can do that. If you are a teacher, if you, ha- if you have a friend who's a teacher, or maybe you're part of a, of a language teaching association, and you'd like to share this interview with the group or with anyone that you know, um, you can do that as well. Once again, the link is IWillTeachYourLanguage.com forward slash Krashen. If you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Krashen himself, you can do that at SKrashen on Twitter. That's S K-R-A-S-H-E-N. And his website as well, if you are minded to read some of his research which i highly recommend you do there's a lot of it but it's wide-ranging and very interesting you can find that again as as he said on his website that's sdkrashen.com so that's s-d-k-r-a-s-h-e-n.com finally if you've enjoyed uh, this podcast or any others and i'd really appreciate a review on itunes because um, it helps other people find the show as well and if you'd like to do that well, Apple's updating its uh, podcasting software all the time. You should be able to actually go onto your podcasting app. If you're using an iPhone, you can go onto the podcasting app itself, look for the show and actually give it a rating there um, inside the app. Otherwise, um, if you can't do that or you're using a different phone, you can go to iTunes, search for IWillTeachYourLanguage.com and leave a rating or review there. I would very much appreciate that. And lastly, you can watch this interview on YouTube as well. If you go to YouTube.com forward slash IWTYAL, that's my channel, or you can search for Ollie Richards on um, on YouTube. You can watch me and Dr. Gresham chatting away in a basement in Montreal. <laughs> yeah, some people like the video, so it's there if you'd like it. Thank you for listening. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. You know, one of the questions I get asked most often about language learning is how to improve your memory. Because things get so much easier when you learn new words and you don't forget them later in conversation when you really need them. So what I decided to do was to put together a a short email course. It's a three-part email course over three days that teaches you my favorite techniques for memorizing vocabulary and actually putting that vocabulary into your long-term memory. It's a short course, three days, it's completely free, and if you'd like to sign up for it, please go to IWillTeachYourLanguage.com forward slash free memory course.